Hello, and welcome to the reading of the business record for Friday, October 8th. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. We'll start with the cover story, A Closer Look, Meet a Leader You Should Know. Fairway will continue growth through new construction. Garrett Picklap, President, Fairway Stores Incorporated. Written by Kathy A. Bolton. The voice on the telephone asked Garrett Picklap if he was available to talk to the White House. It was 7.30 a.m. on a Tuesday in the spring of 2002. Picklap, who was completing his sophomore year at Simpson College in Indianola, was a finalist for a White House internship position. They put me on speakerphone, and I was talking to members of President George W. Bush's team, said Picklap, who in August was named president of Fairway Stores, Inc. They interviewed me on the spot. A short time later, they called back and asked if I wanted to work for the president, he said. Picklap grew up in Boone, where he was raised by a single mom. His travel outside of Iowa was limited. At the time, the walls of my world were pretty narrow, he said. I didn't have any money to travel. Then, overnight, I'm in Washington, D.C., and it is a full-blown culture shock, he said. Before he left for Washington, Picklap's mom bought him a couple of second-hand suits and two others that were on clearance at a department store. The suits were too big for him. One was an uncomplimentary shade of olive green, he said. Picklap was one of several interns who sat in a row of desks in a section of the White House that had a view of the Rose Garden and West Wing. All the interns wore large badges with the word intern printed on them in large capital letters. A few days after Picklap arrived in Washington, his boss asked him if he wanted to meet President Bush, who was returning to the White House on Marine One. Picklap said he grabbed his oversized olive green suit jacket and rushed outside with his boss where he was ushered to a roped-off area at which other people were lined up to greet Bush. I'll remember this forever, Picklap said. There are three ladies standing ahead of me, and President Bush gets to each one, calls them by their first name, and kisses them on the cheek. He gets to me, I stick out my hand, he sticks out his hand. He can see the big, ugly intern badge. I said, Mr. President, it's an honor to work for you. He says, thank you for your service. He starts to walk away from me, and I say, what, Mr. President, no kiss for me? P Picklap said he immediately regretted the words that tumbled out of his mouth. He remembers wondering what his mother would think when she learned what he had said to the President of the United States. Bush walked a few steps and then turned, returning to Picklap. He looked me in the eye and said, Son, I wouldn't kiss you after looking at you. He starts laughing. I start laughing, Picklap said. A White House photographer captured the interaction between the two, and the framed photo hangs on the wall of Picklap's office at Fairway's headquarters in Boone. After Bush left the area, Picklap's boss tapped him on the shoulder and asked him to place a call to someone. I said, Former Secretary of State so-and-so? Picklap said. He said, 
You just asked the most powerful man in the world for a kiss. We trust you to call anyone we ask you to. Instead of opening mail and doing other menial tasks that other White House interns were assigned, Picklap found himself helping draft memos and reaching out to national leaders in various sectors, including the faith community. I learned that sometimes, within reason, you just have to do what feels right, he said. About five years later, Picklap received another unexpected telephone call. This one from a fairway executive asking if he was ready to return to Boone. Picklap's mother had worked in the grocery chain's accounting department for nearly 40 years. And they were kind of watching my path, said Picklap, who at the time was a recent law school graduate working in Kansas City as a law clerk for a federal judge. The fairway executive asked Picklap if he was interested in becoming the company's chief legal advisor, a newly created position. I was way too young to realize that I was probably in over my head, Picklap said. They told me if I needed to meet with other attorneys for assistance or I needed to hire this or that out to do it. They trusted me to get the work done correctly. I've never forgotten the trust they placed in me. I didn't realize it at the time, but that was a foreshadow of what was going to come. That level of trust has continued to grow, he said. Recently, we caught up with Picklap and asked him a few questions. Talk a little bit about e-commerce, because before the pandemic, Fairway's toes may have been in it a bit, but not a lot. And Pickway said, We rolled out fairwaymeatmarket.com in 2013. And you're right, that was just our toes. More recently, we've taken the next step with Click and Collect, where you can place an order at your Johnston Fairway or your Boone Fairway and then pick up your order within a short time afterwards. We'd been vetting the Click and Collect platform for several years leading up to the pandemic. Ultimately, we didn't feel like we had a solution that we were proud of or an experience we were proud of, and then the pandemic hit. We started Click and Collect on January 1st of 2021. We've still got some implications stemming from the supply chain that is limiting the effectiveness of it, but ultimately, we're proud of the experience. How do you see that next segment of the business growing over the next five years or so? It will continue to be an important piece of our business for the customers who want it, but we're still very committed to brick and mortar, and we're going to continue to grow through new construction. Talk about your growth plans for brick and mortar. In spring of 2022, we will open four new locations between March and Memorial Day. Beaverdale, Gretna, Nebraska, Olathe, Kansas, and Rockwell City, Iowa. It's cool because all of these are very different experiences. Beaverdale is one of our standalone meat markets. Gretna will be a typical fairway experience. Rockwell City is really cool because it's a 10,000 square foot store with a partnership with Sukup Manufacturing Company. It's an initiative to give these smaller towns a grocery store. This is a way for us to get into markets like that. We reached out to Sukup to develop a building, a prefab metal building for us. This is a way for two Iowa companies to partner together in order to get grocery stores into these small towns. 
The outside of the building will look and feel different, but the inside is going to feel exactly like a fairway, just a little bit smaller. How many stores like the one planned in Rockwell City does Fairway plan to develop? We're hoping to announce another one soon. We feel this is a market that Fairway can compete in and do well and offer the community a local grocer. Overall, how many new stores do you anticipate Fairway will open annually? I think we've found our sweet spot with opening three to five new stores a year. There are plenty of opportunities that exist to expand in the states where we already are, and there are more opportunities in Des Moines, Omaha, and Sioux Falls. Some of Fairway's competitors, including big box stores that now offer grocery items, also sell a variety of non-food or drink items. How does Fairway keep its customers coming back when they can buy all of their goods at brand X with one stop? We feel like we offer a different experience, and I would also say we offer a different quality, too. Each retailer offers something different, right? If we can offer a quality product with unmatched service, then we feel really good about putting our employees and our experience up against any of those other competitors. And ultimately, if somebody is looking for an experience where it's a one-stop shop, that's not Fairway. But if they're looking for an unmatched experience with service and quality, we think we can offer that. Will Fairway someday deliver groceries to people's front doors? We've been vetting that for a while. Ever since we started analyzing the click and collect feature, we've also been analyzing the delivery component. As of right now, we're continuing to evaluate it. We're also vetting a number of third-party providers that can offer that solution for us too. How is Fairway's Click and Collect program doing? It's grown because we started at zero. I would say it's in line with everything you're reading about in the rest of the industry. The repeat customers have been really, really good, and the number of customers taking advantage of the Click and Collect continues to grow, actually at a rate that probably surprises us. Fairway isn't open on Sundays, and its retail workers still cart customers' groceries to their vehicles. Why continue doing those things? It's a part of our service component that I think separates us from our competitors. Taking customers' groceries to their vehicles is a service that we think is still valued. We think we're really good at it. We think our customers appreciate it, so we're going to continue to do it. And I think I can make a decent argument that the click and collect to your car service is just a modern day extension of the cart service. What is Fairway doing to attract a diverse workforce? Diversity comes in a lot of different ways. There's socioeconomic diversity. There's gender diversity, which is super important to me because I'm the dad of girls. Let's focus on that for one second. The chair of our board of directors is a female. We have a number of board of directors who are women. We have women who serve on our executive team, who serve on our officer team, who serve on our retail management team. The opportunities that we have for gender diversity, I think, are better now than they've ever been before. We also are establishing a culture and an outreach program that welcomes diversity too, and I think that's important. 
You can advocate and promote diversity, but unless your culture and outreach and makeup actually embody that, then I don't know how productive the conversation is. A year ago, we rolled out our lead with love promise with how we're embodying that culture to be welcoming of all forms of diversity. When you're sitting around the table and you're welcoming your differences because the foundation is love and respect and treating others like family, which Fairway has done forever, then you've got to like your chances. In the past year, many of Fairway's competitors have raised starting salaries for their workers. What has Fairway done in that area? We were just talking about how we recruit and retain talent. The compensation benefit package that person A wants is different from what person B wants, and that's different from what the 16-year-old part-timer wants. There's no silver bullet. What we're doing is we're saying that we're going to offer competitive wages, and we're constantly looking at, our, at how our benefit package can get better. For instance, we were among the first companies that offered a student loan repayment program to help employees pay off their debt. We started that three or four years ago. That's a good benefit for a certain demographic, but not everybody goes to college and has debt. We are continually analyzing our flex time schedules, our 401k match, keeping stores closed on Sundays, our warehouse shifts, our management training program. You've got to look at all of the things to recruit and retain talent. Unquestionably, wages are a really important piece of that, but so too are all of these other pieces in the benefit package. We're looking at those factors all the time to figure out how we can continue to lead the industry in these areas and keep our people. Fairway's entry-level wage for a full-time worker in the company's warehouse is $20 an hour, according to PickLap. Entry-level pay for a full-time worker 18 or older in a retail store is about $17 an hour. In the news, there's been a lot of attention paid to the difficulty companies are having recruiting new workers. Is Fairway having any difficulty attracting employees? We fight the same market conditions that everyone else fights. We have been aggressive in our hiring. Since the start of COVID, March 2020, we have made 9,000 new hires. But ultimately, we are still looking for bodies, there's no doubt about it. Do you anticipate becoming CEO of Fairway someday? No, no, no. I'm incredibly blessed to be where I am today. I am a huge cheerleader of our current CEO, and I'm a huge fan of the family. It's their company. I hope I continue to be blessed to be in a position where I can offer long-term value and be part of the decision-making process. But it's their company, and I'm very comfortable with that. What do you do in your free time? Both of my girls are in competitive cheerleading. We travel a lot for that. I read occasionally. I really don't have a lot of spare time. Garrett Picklap, president of Fairway Stores, Inc., at a glance, age 40, hometown Boone, lives in Huxley, family, wife Tammy Picklap, two school-aged daughters, education, bachelor's degree in political science in 2004 from Simpson College and law degree from University of Missouri, Kansas City in 2007. 
work background. Named president of Fairway Stores, Inc. in August, has worked at Fairway since June 2008 in several roles, including chief legal advisor, secretary, and executive vice president. Between August 2007 and June 2008, was law clerk for a federal judge in the 16th Circuit Court. Other activities. Iowa Business Council, Boone County Bar Association, Iowa Grocery Industry Association, District 2B Judicial Nominating Commission, American and Iowa Bar Associations. Contact G-P-I-K-L-A-P-P at fairwaystores.com. Our next story, the Envision Iowa event, economic development and business leaders brainstorm over how to make Iowa grow and thrive by Michael Crum. Placemaking, innovation and creativity, and addressing issues that directly affect the state's workforce and its ability to attract and retain top talent. Those were the messages that came from three think tank sessions that brought together economic development and business leaders from across Iowa. The business record, in collaboration with the Iowa Economic Development Authority, created the Envision Iowa series this year to help Iowa thrive and grow. Its goal was to create opportunities for economic development and business leaders to connect, share ideas, discuss what's working in their communities and what hasn't been working, and offer each other possible solutions to those challenges. As part of the initiative, three think tank sessions were held, with each focusing on a particular topic. The first one in July focused on people and culture. The second one in August focused on business opportunities, and the third, held on September 21st, focused on infrastructure. They were followed by a public event on October 6th. Each think tank session featured a panel of speakers who shared their thoughts and experiences with the by-invitation-only audience. During each program, the audience was separated into two breakout sessions to share their takeaways from the discussion, what resonated most with them, and how their organization or community is addressing a particular issue. As varied as the conversations were, there were some common themes that were threaded throughout all three think tank sessions. On people and places. Comments from Debbie Durham, Executive Director, Iowa Economic Development Authority. As we move past COVID, what are we looking at? I think the future is all about workforce, workforce, workforce. In Iowa, we have two issues. We have a population issue. We have slow population growth. We have an aging population. We have more jobs than we have people to fill them. That is true today, and that was true prior to COVID. When you think about our population, 44% of our growth basically came from immigration. And then we're going to be talking about diversity and what that makeup is. Drew Camp, President and CEO, Council Bluffs Area Chamber of Commerce, says, What can we do to attract talent and workforce? Placemaking comes in as providing those amenities, those community services, 
But one thing that is more of a policy issue in a way we can try to attract population is immigration needs to play a role as well. That's something that is a federal policy issue, and we need to continue to beat the drum because Iowa is not growing at the rate other states are, and we need to do everything we can to try to attract population. Della Schmidt, President and CEO of Greater Burlington Partnership. When I talk about workforce, I always remind people that there are two buckets. One is the K-12 education pipeline. The other is those that are already in the workforce. We need to be working with employers to create opportunities for career exploration and opportunities for students. We also think it's important to continue with employers and community leaders on what does it mean? What does it look like to be a welcoming community to all people? Angela Jackson, Senior Vice President of Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Athene. One of the barriers is change. It sounds simple, but it's not easy. People typically resist change. But we have to make a commitment and we have to be focused with laser tenacity so that the change can be sustainable and ongoing. It's not just a catchy phrase. Change the way we market. Change the way we recruit and hire. Change the way we develop partnership in the community in which we live, work, and play. That's the only way we're going to improve that trajectory. Increase diversity, increase the people that are attracted to be in our wonderful state. Michael Moraine, Communications Manager, Iowa Department of Cultural Affairs. It's interesting to think about why people are leaving cities, and if they are, where they go. They may not want a super small town, but they want a community for reasons we don't even know yet. So whatever our plan is, there are lots of little situations and little magnets and attractions for people. There's not one magic thing. I think we have to think about lots of little reasons that could pull different pockets of people to Iowa. And on the subject of business opportunities, Joe Murphy, Executive Director of the Iowa Business Council, said, We should be talking about creating a more positive business climate for entrepreneurs in particular. We should be doing everything we can to be welcoming and inclusive, but that also includes trying to elevate those next-generation talents in our communities, focusing in on areas of entrepreneurship that will lead to further technology advances in our state. We've had a great history over the past 20 years or so, but it's all been deliberate. So we need to be strategic and deliberate and forward-thinking over the next generation. Rob Denson, President, Des Moines Area Community College. Probably the two biggest talent attractors to Iowa are Iowa State University and the University of Iowa, and we need to do more to encourage them to bring out-of-state individuals into Iowa. With the companies, we need to work harder to keep them here, Because with everything we've got going on, internships, etc., we can integrate them into the pipeline from any of those companies. Aaron Horn, Executive Director, NuboCo. I think it's just important that we highlight the creative solutions. When someone comes up with a really creative solution to one of these problems, if the word gets out about how that worked, what worked well and what didn't work, 
then that allows other communities to say, could we do something like that here? Telling those stories and allowing other areas in Iowa and across the state to say, oh, we can do that here. I think that really goes a long way. Rosalind Fox, plant manager, John Deere Des Moines Works in Ankeny. We could really set ourselves up to be the next ag semiconductor and the ag Silicon Valley right here in Iowa. If we could collaborate and have some really strong partnerships with those companies that are in ag and continue to work on developing the talent, there is no reason why we couldn't be seen as that tech expert for the ag industry here in Iowa. The more we can collaborate with private and public partnerships to do that, we will definitely be successful. We know Iowa is a great state. Families do well here. We have a great cost of living, entertainment activities, great hiking and bicycling trails, great schools and universities. So we really need to be able to leverage those things to build that talent so that we can be that premier state around agriculture. Gary Sterling, Buena Vista University and Lamberti Center for Rural Entrepreneurship says, develop a strong list of resources you provide. When you meet people, you want to be able to show value and make sure that value becomes reality for them. So get that list of resources you've provided for a company's development. Comments on infrastructure. From Emily Schmidt, Chief Administration Officer and General Counsel, Sukup Manufacturing Company, and member of the Governor's Economic Recovery Task Force. Just like we've heard, the pandemic elevated where people really wanted to spend their time when society slowed down. We also saw what society needed at its core to function. So stripping back a little bit more out of the fringes, we saw childcare was needed. And even before the pandemic started, we lost 33% of our childcare providers in the last five years. When you look at the facts, the average Iowa family spends more on childcare than they do on their housing each month. With the rising level of costs, it's just getting very hard for families to find quality and affordable childcare. When we're trying to grow communities and when you're trying to recruit people in rural communities, one of the first things is where can I have childcare? Ryan Schapp, CIO, Wells Enterprises. $100 million for broadband. That's a big deal. But we actually need $800 million to get broadband right all the way across the state. So the $100 million is a nice start, but we're going to have to realize that's going to be a multi-year journey, or we'll have to do more towards it in the short term. Robin Anderson, President and CEO of the Mason City Chamber of Commerce. We just don't have enough people, and the people we have are getting older. It's people to work, and with housing shortages, we really see immigration as the only way to grow. And we don't have places, places to house people. We haven't recovered from the 163 homes that we lost in the 2008 flood. So getting market rate housing and rental housing stock is probably step one for us. Jenny Cooper, Vice President and Manager of Commercial Real Estate, Bankers Trust. Housing is really critical to economic development, both for attraction and retention of workers, for childhood education, 
for stability of homes and for family health. It's so interconnected and is a basic need, really, for all Iowans. The goal for us is to make housing attainable so someone pays less than 30% of their gross income on housing. So for those families that make less than $18.50 an hour, that's about $960 a month. Suresh Gunasakaran, CEO of University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. We're an industry that's struggling with workforce. As our communities see more and more providers move away or retire, the problem we have is new providers don't find those as attractive places to come and practice because if you're in those communities, you're the doctor for 365 days a year or maybe have a partner. And folks don't want to practice in an environment where they are on call half the year, all night. What we really think about is how can we have a more collaborative healthcare infrastructure that helps meet people where they are so they can have a team behind them so they feel like even if I practice in a rural community, I'm connected to a team that helps me cover healthcare issues I can't handle. Secondly is really to explore the potential of telehealth to supplement what providers can do. As we think about this, it's how we can make healthcare accessible where folks are, but make sure that care is connected to a broader system of care that works for all Iowans. And Barbara Sloniker, Executive Vice President of the Siouxland Chamber of Commerce in Sioux City says, COVID showed us people can work from wherever they want around the world. Why would someone choose Iowa? We have to have something for them to do in their time off, and we have to play up our unique attributes. We need to highlight those things to people and let them know what they can do when they're not busy. This will be a big part of our legislative agenda coming up in 2022, but we need to find ways to make your communities attractive, but show their uniqueness. We have great variety in Iowa. You're listening to the reading of the business record for Friday, October 8th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now turning to this week's feature story, the Fearless Column. Dorothy's House, Reddy's New Recovery Home by Emily Barsky. 2020 was not a great time to build a home or to kick off a capital campaign to fund it. As the coronavirus pandemic wreaked havoc on the economy, the prices of building materials soared, and nonprofits struggled to find funding in the same way as they used to. But as Kelly Markey, founder of Dorothy's House, stood with other onlookers in mid-December of 2019 and watched a 131-year-old home on the organization's campus get demolished, no one could have known those economic implications were coming in just a few weeks. The 2019 demolition was the end of an era for the structure to make way for a new home for the organization, which provides a safe place and programming for survivors of human trafficking and sexual exploitation. Much like the resilience the organization tries to instill in survivors, Dorothy's house had to lean on its ability to adapt in order to move forward with the project and the capital campaign needed to fund it. Leading up to December of 2019, we had lost foundation bricks. We had a chimney that was not repairable. We had very significant issues, Markey said. 
We didn't want to tear the house down, but it started flooding in the cellar and our mechanicals were in there. And there was no solution to prevent water flow to that cellar and it also wasn't serving our needs anymore. So we tore it down in December of 19 with plans of starting our capital campaign in January, which we did. We printed all of our materials and we were ready to go after the holidays. And then in February, we had to put it on pause, she said. Many institutions that would have been interested in helping the project either didn't have the means at the start of 2020 or instead directed their funding at food insecurity and housing instability. But the campaign eventually went on after the intermission, starting back up in October of 2020, with a goal to fund the construction and also end with no mortgage on the house. They received just over $200,000 of in-kind gifts, like the roof, kitchen cabinets, flooring, paint, and more. They raised $180,000 in funds on top of that. The build has been ongoing since. And after wrapping up what's needed for its occupancy certificate from the city of Des Moines, participants will be able to begin staying at the home as soon as possible. Marky and Amy McDonald, Director of Operations, recently gave the business record a tour of the new home. The need for the new house existed not only because the old one was crumbling, but because of what the organization learned about its needs to help serve survivors since it launched in 2016. One thing they came to realize is that survivors who were in their first few months of programming had very different needs from those who had been there a year. This is the recovery house, and they will stay here from three to five months, kind of depending on what the needs are, build safety, start to establish some life skills and routines. McDonald said. If necessary, some participants can apply for an extended period in the recovery house. The second phase is focused on transitioning and includes four to six months where participants can have more independence. They work, have a cell phone, and reacclimate into an independent living situation within the safety net of Dorothy's house. The third phase is the front porch program, where they move into an off-site apartment apartment with some subsidies from Dorothy's house and still do some programming. The new home was specifically designed with equity in mind, from the four bedrooms being nearly identical to the same amount of space in the fridge and pantry for each participant. It's also ADA compliant. It includes a library, a large outdoor garden, a workout space, and other amenities. The house now has a proper office and a break room for staff as well. The home is set up for the first phase of programming on recovery as it allows the participants to learn life skills like financial literacy, cooking, housekeeping, etc. As it relates to human trafficking in Iowa, many have heard that Interstates 80 and 35 make the state a hotspot, but that is a fallacy, Markey said. Every state has a major interstate intersection, she pointed out, but the crime is bigger than that and happens in every city and state in the country, including every county in Iowa. Part of the dynamic that makes it so easy to conduct this business here is we have a few concentrations of large populations with a lot of little outlying areas that are easy to access, a short time distance away where you can come and go, Marky said. But it's spread out enough that people don't see the traffic patterns. 
so you can leave your desk in downtown Des Moines and make it to Indianola or Cumming or to a property in a nearby area, buy somebody for sex over lunch, and then come back to work and nobody knows the difference, she said. Survivors sometimes contact the agency directly to find out about the programming, but they're more often referred to the organization by other service agencies that help survivors of human trafficking and exploitation, but don't specialize in it like Dorothy's house does. Some past participants have been exploited anywhere from one week to as long as 15 years before programming with the organization. Though you can never fully recover from the crime, Dorothy's house helps teach coping mechanisms. Markey said they once hosted a Super Bowl party with a past participant, and at halftime the participant went up to bed because she couldn't recall a Super Bowl weekend where she wasn't raped the entire time. Her response to triggers was to hide in her closet for three days. Though they could never make that trigger go away, Markey said, they could focus on helping the survivor reduce the time hiding to three hours and eventually three minutes using different trauma coping strategies. Individuals who are recovered from this crime or who find themselves out of this crime aren't always ready for the rigors of restoration and don't always want what you have to offer, Markey said. They might need to work on some other things. They might need an inpatient treatment program, or they might need a greater level of mental health support than we can provide here. And so we oftentimes are diverting people to other resources before they're ready to come to a place like this, she said. Many programs like Dorothy's House expect people to be at least 30 days sober before starting programming. But that isn't an expectation of the organization because it would be tough to expect survivors to come out of this crime and also have solved addiction issues, she said. It's really hard work and you apply two years of your life to working on yourself, which few people ever have the privilege to do and few people ever want to do. It's a deep dive, she said. There are few state and federal funding sources that directly apply to the work Dorothy's House does, so the organization relies mainly on community support. Kelly Markey is currently still working on raising an additional $30,000 for the project. To learn more about Dorothy's House, visit dorothyshouse.org. Contact Markey at K-E-L-L-I-E-M at dorothyshouse.org or phone number 515-423-8353. Editor's note, the location of the property and campus were intentionally left out to protect the survivors. From the Real Estate and Development section, Merle Hay Mall being transformed into something pretty special by Kathy A. Bolton. When Merle Hay Plaza opened in 1959, it was anchored by Sears on the north and Yonkers on the south. Stores and restaurants occupied the space between the two department stores. Over the years, the shopping center now known as Merle Hay Mall was enclosed and enlarged, at one time reaching 1.2 million square feet of retail and office space. 
In recent years, it lost two of its top anchors, Sears and Yonkers. Other retailers shuttered their doors as e-commerce grew in popularity with consumers. Now Amazon Inc., the world's largest revenue-producing e-commerce company, is making plans to open several large physical retail stores across the United States, according to a recent Wall Street Journal article. The stores, which would sell clothing, household items, and electronics, would be similar to department stores that in recent decades have fallen out of favor with consumers. Amazon, quote, realizes that a brick-and-mortar store is the best last-mile solution. They are asking the customers to distribute to themselves over the last mile, said Emily Holland, Elizabeth Holland, CEO of Merle Hay Investors, which owns the mall that is located on the northwest corner of Merle Hay Road and Douglas Avenue. Holland spoke during the September 28th Iowa Commercial Real Estate Conference held at the Ron Pearson Center in West Des Moines. The question becomes, if this is where sales are going, then where is shopping center gross leasable area going, Holland said. For Holland, whose grandfather and another man developed Merle Hay Mall, the answer is ensuring that the center attracts large numbers people who spend money on entertainment, food and drinks, hard goods like clothing and shoes, and services such as nail salons. But to get the customers to Merle Hay, the center needs to have features not found elsewhere, she said. You can bring consumers something beautiful, but if they're not interested in it, it's going to fail. Construction is expected to begin this winter on converting former department store space into a 3,500-seat multi-use arena. The space located on the west side of the mall will become the new home to the Des Moines Buccaneers hockey team. It will double as an event venue for concerts, conferences, and youth sports tournaments. Redevelopment of the western portion of the mall will also include construction of a center with three additional sheets of ice to be used for competition, training, and recreation, and a 150-room hotel. A new food court is also planned. The redevelopment, estimated to cost $47.4 million, is expected to draw 750,000 people annually to Merle Hay. Improvements are planned on the south side of the mall, including adding interior and exterior storefronts, Holland said. We're working on those plans now so we can show those retailers how it will look. In addition, Kohl's department store is moving from the west side of the mall to the east side, anchoring the north end where Sears once was located. The new 55,000-square-foot store will face the heavily-traveled Merle Hay Road. A strip center is planned north of Coles. Storefronts in that center will also be seen from Merle Hay Road. Holland said some current tenants and ones inquiring about locating in the mall are interested in locating in the area between the new Coles and Target, which now anchors the south end of the center, that will have 809,000 square feet of space when the redevelopment is completed. About 530,000 square feet of space will be retail, Holland said. People's expectations of how these retail centers are getting used is changing, she said. Consumers who go to Flick's Brewhouse to watch a movie likely won't shop at the center's retail stores. 
However, people who attend an event at the new arena likely will eat at a nearby restaurant and could shop at some of the center's retail stores, Holland said. Youth sports tournaments held at the arena and the adjacent center will likely draw scores of people to the mall's retailers, including Game Day Arcade, Game Day Bowling Lanes, Selfie Studio, and Lobby Game Lounge, a high-end gaming lounge. The thing that will make your retail go gangbusters is the four-day hockey tournament or volleyball tournament, Holland said. Teams will play for an hour and then have two or three hours off. Where are they going to go? They might go to Game Lounger or get a group selfie. We're going to have three distinct synergies. The hockey or other sports, the entertainment, and the retail. The retail will reinforce the hockey and the hockey will reinforce the retail. The entertainment will give everyone something to do, she said. For Merle Hay to continue to be relevant to consumers, its recreation, its recreation had to be, quote, resilient to the marketplace and sustainable over time, Holland said. We have learned that the best way for success in Des Moines is to bring something that is brand new. I think Merle Hay will be transformed to something that is pretty special, she said. Now turning to Drew McClellan's marketing column. How will you connect with your employees in 2022? We are officially in the fourth quarter of 2021. It seems like just yesterday when we were all gladly waving goodbye to 2020, and yet in a blink, here we are. In the next several columns, I'd like to focus on helping you get prepped for coming out of the gate strong in 2022 by already having a plan in place. This week, let's focus on one of the most important and overlooked audiences, your employees. All too often, how, when, and what we communicate to our own team is an afterthought despite the fact that they are often the conduit through which we communicate and connect with our customers. That feels very short-sighted. All of that is true under any circumstances, but today, as every organization on the planet is struggling to find and keep good staff, it becomes mission critical. If we don't become an employer of choice, we're going to struggle to even maintain market share, let alone increase it. There are several key communications, I might even call them marketing components, to being an employer or of choice. If you can't give yourself top marks for each of these, they are worthy of some planning time as you look forward to 2022. Values, mission. People want to work for companies whose worldview aligns with their own. Having some values on a wall or in your employee handbook isn't enough. You should plan on communicating regularly about what those values and mission mean to the organization and spotlight all the ways you are actually walking your talk. Beyond that, recognizing employees who exemplify those values and, equally important, not tolerating employees who behave in violation of them, is one of the most powerful ways to communicate that they're more than lip service. Where are we headed? Your employees want to know where you plan to take the company in the coming months. More than that, they want to play a role in helping you get there. 
They very well could have ideas or insights you need to actually get to the goals more quickly. Setting goals that they can be privy to and sharing a progress update every month or quarter will help create a sense of teamwork and accomplishment when you hit the goals. It also reminds them that they work for an organization that is hitting its marks, which means more opportunity for the employees. In this ultra-tight labor market, that's a good message to reinforce. What's on sale this week? On more than one occasion, we've worked with a client who didn't have a mechanism for sharing the upcoming ads or promotions with their internal team before they went live. Imagine how frustrating it would be to have your customers know more than you do about a current offer. If this is your situation, solve it. Find a way to always share any marketing message or sales promotion with your team before it hits the streets. Don't just say it once. Whatever your most important messages are for your team, don't fall into the trap of assuming they heard and retained it once you've shared it once. If it's truly important, it's something worth repeating. It's also worth repeating in different ways. Everyone has a natural way of taking in information. If it's really mission critical, use a variety of communication tools, visuals, video, audio, etc. If you want your team to accelerate their retention and understanding of a key company initiative or focus, get them involved in an activity around it. The more hands-on we are with ideas, the more we remember them. As you look to 2022, one of the first commitments I'd like to suggest you make is to over-communicate with your employees. Believe me, it will not be too much. The Elbert Files column by Dave Elbert. Reunion during a pandemic. My recent high school reunion felt different, and it wasn't because we are now as likely to meet old friends in a cemetery as at a bar. According to our class obituary keeper, half as many of us died in the last six years as did during the first 50 years. The Ames High School class of 1965 has gotten together at least once every 10 years since we graduated. Our 50th reunion went so well, we were planning number 55 for September 2020 until the pandemic intervened. Beginning in March of 2020, sporting events were canceled and public entertainment ended. Weddings and funerals were postponed and most churches closed their doors. Businesses and schools searched desperately for online models to remain open. The bartender's handshake, a watering hole near my home, switched to carry out cocktails. Friends who were afraid to meet face-to-face -face got creative and held Zoom cocktail parties. During that frightful spring, our reunion committee decided to postpone our September reunion. A wise move because by that fall, Iowa was a top 10 COVID state. At the beginning, there were frightful shortages of masks, testing equipment, and medical supplies, not to mention toilet paper and other near necessities. The little political leadership that existed was horribly inconsistent and produced a lack of willingness to do what was needed. Mask wearing and social distancing were proven strategies 
that had helped during the 1918 influenza pandemic and other pandemics around the world. But somehow, that didn't matter here. Somehow, face coverings became a political statement, and many refused to wear them. By now, more than 440,000 Iowans have gotten sick with COVID-19, and nearly 6,500 have died. As 2020 ended, we became hopeful that a vaccine would soon be available and put the pandemic behind us. The vaccine rollout began in January, and my 73- and 74-year-old classmates were among the first to get it. We were the first generation to receive mandatory polio shots in the 1950s, and for most of us, the COVID-19 vaccine was not an issue. Most of our 10-person reunion committee got shots in January and February, and we began thinking about rescheduling our gathering for May or June. By then, we figured Iowans would have quickly lined up and gotten shots and things would be getting back to normal. But it didn't work out that way. By May, only 36% of all Iowans were fully vaccinated. The total increased to 49% by the end of June, and then slowly crept up to the current level of about 55%, where it seems to have plateaued well below the desired level of 80 to 90%. Not even the arrival of the more dangerous Delta variant of COVID did much to move the needle. Our reunion committee punted on a June gathering, and we set September 17th to 19th as the dates for our event. Nothing got better during the summer. Ragbri, outdoor concerts, and the Iowa State Fair fueled the spread of COVID, although it was difficult to know by how much because tracing and reporting standards had been lowered. What we did know by August was that most of the COVID spread was among the unvaccinated, who were still getting sick and dying in increasing numbers. But that wasn't us. We were vaccinated. We went ahead with the reunion and discouraged attendance by unvaccinated classmates, although we did not require proof of vaccination. Also, we planned events that were held out of doors or in well-ventilated spaces. We ended up attracting about 50 people, roughly half the number who had originally planned to attend a year earlier. It is now two weeks after the event, and I have not heard of any COVID issues associated with the reunion. Given the precautions we took, I'm hopeful there will be none. Classmates who attended covered the political spectrum, but there was very little talk of politics. They were great and really seemed to be having a good time said Jim Billings, who led the reunion effort. And that does it for today's reading of the business record for Friday, October 8th, 2021. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thanks for listening.
From the Bureau of Economic Geology, this is Earth Date. Though our electricity system is highly complex, its basic principle is simple. 99% of our electricity comes from turning a generator. We do that mostly by burning a resource like coal or natural gas to boil water, which makes steam, which turns a turbine connected to a generator. Heat from a nuclear reaction or a geothermal well are other ways to make steam and turn a generator. Water held behind a dam, then released to flow through turbines, turns generators without having to produce steam. All these generation systems produce emissions, like water vapor, CO2 or other gases, particulates, or a small amount of nuclear waste. And all of them are available on demand, which is very important, because we can't store electricity very well at scale so it must be made when we need it. Wind, too, turns a generator. It makes up about 1% of global power generation. Solar, the only one to produce electricity without a generator, makes up another 1%. Wind and solar produce no emissions, but they have other environmental impacts in mining materials, manufacturing, the large amounts of land they occupy, and eventual disposal. And because they make electricity only when the sun shines or the wind blows, we have to back them up with other power sources. The modern world depends on our electricity system, and it's something we'll talk more about. I'm Scott Tinker with another electrifying Earth Date. Earth Date is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin, with support from Schlumberger, helping oil and gas companies increase production and efficiency while lowering environmental impact. You can hear more Earth Date stories at earthdate.org.